Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's not going to be the end of the world to be accountable. It's not the end of the world to say, look, this is how we got here, and there's a way out of it if we're willing to face some things that we've never wanted to face. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking to author Howard Bryant about his new book, Full Dissidence, Notes from an Unlevel Playing Field. This is a sports writer venturing deep into the world of politics, and we are going to speak to him about that process and some of his observations about this 21st century world. Also, I've got some choice words about the Super Bowl. Yes, that was just a week ago, if you can believe it. Seems like a year ago. Uh, That owes more to politics in this country than sports. But I'm going to read all about my thoughts about this last Super Bowl 54. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards. But first, Howard Bryant. So you're a sports journalist by trade. I think a lot of folks want to know what pushed you to write a book of political essays, a book that gets praised by people like Naomi Klein and Ibram Kendi. Uh, what, what pushed you in that direction? Well, I think what pushed me in the direction to go outside of sports was that I found sports was too limiting. I found that there were too many issues where there was where there was too much overlap. And I also found that the the sports audience was willing to accept what was happening to a point. And I felt like what was happening in this country and in this culture was so important that maybe if you stretched outside of the boundaries, you could see that it was more than a sports issue, because I think that there were too many times when when you're talking about sports, you know this as well as anybody, that people try to trivialize what you're talking about because you're in the arena of sports. But if you could find the way and find the different devices to pull out some of these ideas and recognize that that the concepts we're talking about on labor and sports are also happening in the Supreme Court, that they all mirror and mimic each other, that when you're talking about rehabilitation of certain people or when you're talking about the the gaps in salaries and such you're also talking about what's happening in congress and you're talking about what's happening in the cabinet and you're talking talking about what's happening in the larger culture so i felt like maybe doing a bit more uh, cultural commentary cultural criticism was going to expand these ideas to maybe make people think a little bit more about what they're watching on the field and also to sort of amplify the notion that what you're watching on the field is inherently political as well. There was maybe only one way to do that, and that was to break down that barrier. Have you gotten any stick-to-sports backlash since the book came out? 
not at all. In fact, it's been it's been the opposite, and that's been encouraging because, as we say, when you, whenever you write, you worry, especially when you go outside. We know that it's very, very difficult for someone who covers sports to go outside of sports. It's much, much easier for a David Halberstam or a David Remnick or somebody who writes about the serious issues to move or David Marinus to go into sports. Much, much more difficult for somebody who's in the so-called toy department to step outside and be taken seriously. And part of the reason for that, too, is that you wonder, because it's such a crowded field, because there are so many big brains out there who already talk about these issues, is there room for you? Is there room for your perspectives? Are the topics and the themes that you're taking on, do they resonate? Are they going to stick? Do they hold? And I've been really gratified to see that they have and that that people are sort of, when we're talking about this stuff, it, it usually happens when you're doing things that you think are unique. Hopefully it resonates and people say, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. And one of the funniest things, I'm sure you will definitely appreciate this, is that some of the connections in the book, people don't recognize who some of these shadow powers are. For example, in, in the chapter, The Joke's on You, I've had several people walk up to me and say, I didn't know Betsy DeVos was related to the Orlando Magic Amway DeVos's. I'm like, yep, same person. So you start seeing people connect those dots from inside and outside the sports world. You know, I, I thought the book was fantastic. And one of the reasons it resonated with me is that I'm a big James Baldwin fan. And there was a strong feel of the essays of James Baldwin in the book. And you quote Baldwin as well. And I wanted to ask you, uh, was reading Baldwin something you did consciously to prep for this kind of project? And who else did you read in terms of political essayists as a way to get you in the headspace to do this? Well, I think that sometimes reading people in that political headspace gets you out of it because you start asking yourself, I can't match that. I can't compete in that world. They, they're above me. Uh, when it comes to Baldwin, I've been reading Baldwin since I was a teenager. And I, when I start thinking, if somebody said to me, okay, what was the first non-assigned book that you read that hits you right between the eyes. And it was probably Baldwin's novel, Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone. And then Ooh. immediately following that, I moved into his nonfiction. And, uh, and that, this is in the, the mid-'80s. So Baldwin, I always say to most of us, to, to, if you're a black writer, um, Baldwin is our godfather in so many different ways. Between Baldwin and Toni Morrison, godmother, godfather. You can't get away from them. You don't want to get away from them. You hope when you read them that they inspire you instead of, instead of depress you because you can't play notes like that. Uh, but to answer the question also, uh, Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, I wish I had read that book before publication. I, that book, the, uh, when that book came out, Full Dissidence was already in production, but my goodness, some of the dots she connected, I was like, oh man, I wish I could riff on some of these themes. Uh, Naomi Klein's No Is Not Enough um, was huge for me. Um, also, No Logo, Naomi Klein also, I would say. Uh, Rebecca Song, uh, you know, the, the Haymarket books of hers, obviously. Um, the Mother of All Questions is terrific. I think also uh, Hope in the Dark and obviously Men Explain Things to Me. All three of those have just been fantastic. Um, I think one of the writers that I'd been reading for the last several years earlier um, in the Times back in the 2000s was, you know, Frank Rich's column in the New York Times had been a real inspiration, you know, 15, 20 years ago during the Gulf, early days of the Gulf War. And, and obviously, you know, Thomas Frank's, uh, a couple of his books 
um, obviously Pity the Billionaire, Listen Liberal, um, Rendezvous with Oblivion. I mean, all, all of these different books, when you start reading them, you start to read uh, that something's happening, is, you know, something's happening here, and you need to start to explore it and hope that you've got a unique enough voice that what you say isn't so much overlapping or parroting them, but you're finding your own voice. Hmm. At one point in the book, you write, the only two acceptable avenues for discussing race in the United States is to acknowledge things are better than they were or to get over it. So how do we break out of that trap? What is, what is the most effective way? Because you're right, it, it's, an, it's a stultifying dichotomy. How do we break out of that? Yeah, it's backbreaking and it's something that, you know, I've been dealing with my whole life. You know, when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with, with white people, they drop both of those on you. When you're dealing with black people, they drop both of them on you. And sometimes they do it because they, they're trying to toughen you up, to harden you, to let you know that we do know you got to be three times as good. The way to break out of that is accountability. The way to break out of that is for, is for all of us and especially for the, the white majority to recognize how we got here. And that's the reason why we have such difficulty having these conversations, because nobody wants to acknowledge how we got here. There is no accountability. There is no shared responsibility. There is no, no recognition that, gee, this didn't just happen by itself. And this is part of the, the, the reason for writing this book. When I start thinking about the idea of full dissidence, I'm realizing that, look, you were brought here to be part of a permanent underclass. And that strategy has succeeded to a point but not with everybody you have an opportunity to talk about some of these things and to say to say something that you hope is going to represent people in a way that um, where I see black people not being represented so obviously the way to break out of it on the one side is to have more voices but also on the other is for people to listen and to recognize that it's not going to be the end of the world to be accountable. It's not the end of the world to say, look, this is how we got here, and there's a way out of it if we're willing to face some things that we've never wanted to face. I mean, mm -hmm. when you look at like some of the essays in the book, like Copaganda, for example, in that essay, we talk about the the power of the police and why are the police, why do they resonate so much? Why are they so powerful and in, in not just in terms of power, but in terms of imagination. And the reason is, is because the police built the ethnic middle class. And it's very difficult for white people to separate that, that fact with, you know, with who they are, because now we're talking about identity. I mean, how many times do we, especially if you're an ethnic East Coaster, the police and fire are very, very close to members of your family. They built who you are. So it's very difficult for white people to listen to this and very, very easy for black people to see it in a different way. Can those gaps be bridged? I don't know. But the point that I was trying to make was I'm not willing to play that game anymore to act like no, no gap exists. Mm. Now, you, of course, use sports as a lens throughout the book to try to um, elucidate a lot of the political points you're trying to make. And at one point, you, you wrote this very profound phrase. You wrote... Colin Kaepernick taught us we were desperate. Explain, explain what that means. Well, I think what I meant by that section that he taught us that we were desperate was that you're the, you look at, you look at cap and 
he feels like he's a Stretch Armstrong doll in some ways to date myself a little bit, where he gets pulled in so many different directions. You know, his opponents use him as a symbol. He's he's Metacomet. His head is on a pike in, in Plymouth County. On the other hand, you have the activists and the progressives out there who need him to speak. Do you really need him to speak? And he hasn't given an interview since January of 2017. And we keep looking to him to to represent us in so many ways when actually the answers aren't with Colin Kaepernick. The answers are in the mirror. I, I don't need Colin Kaepernick to tell me where to go. Colin Kaepernick has already done his job in my, in, in my mind. He has inspired us to think about things. He has demonstrated that he's willing to pay a certain price for those things. And then it's up to us to do the rest. But to me, it's part of that desperation that we do so well in America here, which is to, well, we can't do anything without some charismatic leader. There's no possible way that we can actually think about these things. And if he doesn't talk, then what do we do? How about you look in the mirror and do it yourself? You know, I, I heard you on Chris Hayes' podcast about how your own feelings on Kaepernick uh, have changed. And while I loathe uh, repeating questions that other podcasters ask guests, I, I just thought that it was really deep. And I wanted to see if you could uh, go back over that for us. Like, wh- what did you mean when you, when you said your feelings have changed? Yeah, well, my mind had to change on, on Cap because I was in that category of saying, okay, what's his strategy? Does he have a strategy? Is he, is he helping his movement? Is he hurting the movement? Does, do, you know, do I need Colin Kaepernick to, find, you know, to come out and speak on these issues? Part of the reason why I wanted him to was out of protection for him. I didn't want people to erase him because you know it's not neutral when it comes to Kaepernick people are actively trying to erase him some people who consider themselves allies to Colin Kaepernick are actively trying to erase him the people who are not allies to Cap are actively trying to hurt him so I spent so much time thinking about that and about what he needed to do to prevent that from happening but then the Nike ad changed on the one hand, I was upset with the Nike ad because it felt aspirational and it bothered me because it didn't feel tough enough. It didn't feel like it represented what he was really all about or what I interpreted that to be. But then I also realized something else, and that was when all of these white people went out there and all of these cops and all these retailers went out there and tried to boycott Nike. You tried to boycott the, one of the biggest corporations in the world all because they gave Colin Kaepernick a a one-minute, 30-second ad, that told me that Colin Kaepernick needed more of our support. He needed more of our protection. If you've got these people who are trying to, to take everything from him, in other words, not only do you not want him in the NFL, you don't want him to have anything at all. And you're, you're, you're willing to take on Nike to ensure that? That told me that this was a level of aggression, a level of anger, a level of hostility, not just toward him, but toward all of the issues that he represented and that he needed us actually more than ever. So my mind had to change. I was wrong about that. It felt like old school, small town McCarthyism from the fifties where they don't even want you to have a job. Like there's no job Colin Kaepernick could have. Yeah. They want you destroyed. If you got a job as, as a cobbler, they would say, we don't want you working there. They would pick at the cobbler shop. That's right. And I was thinking, I'm like, okay, you know, sometimes it feels hyperbolic to go back 
and make these comparisons to Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Robeson and the rest of them because it's not the same and it and you don't want to make these sort of irresponsible leaps because time is so different and because those guys in a lot of ways paid a much 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 heavier price than Colin because Colin has a little bit more or a lot more financial cushion and I was thinking and that was the other thing that bothered me about it in terms of my mind had to change was the number of black people who were like oh well he should have taken all of his money and given it you know to charity or kept it in the move and I'm like well does he have to be destitute too I'm happy that Colin is is rich I don't know how rich he is but I'm happy he's rich enough I'm happy that he's not another black man who paid a price by being completely ruined, like Paul Robeson, whose whose annual income went from $120,000 a year to the equivalent of $6,000 a year. I'm happy that he's not John Carlos and didn't have to work as a security guard or a busboy or a restauranter. Um, good for him, you know. And I was upset with the idea that this was the requirement. Hasn't he taken enough? Why did exactly. why why must everything be taken for him to be considered authentic? Now, what I thought was really interesting about the book, and I have to say I can't recommend enough that people get this book and read it, Full Dissidence, Notes from an Unlevel Playing Field by Howard Bryant. Um, what I found really interesting is that the book very consciously offers no solutions for how to move forward. And, you know, there, there is this pressure on black authors in particular to tell a white readership that everything is going to be okay or your humanity is not in question because you have the enlightenment to actually pick up and read this book. Did you feel that pressure? And how conscious was that on your part? Well, it was very conscious. It was certainly conscious because I can't help you. You can help you. And I was thinking that I wasn't upset about it. I think that people look at it as an anger issue, like, oh, it's not my job to fix your problems. I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it much more differently. I thought that that Naomi Klein's book, No, is not enough. And, and the subtitle, How to Resist Trump Shock Politics and, and Create the World We Want, or something close to that, um, that is a, a, a survival guide. That book tells you it's a survival guide. Ibram Kendi's book, you know, How to Be Anti-Racist. There's, there's a strategy. There's a pathway here. And I didn't feel that. I didn't feel like I wanted to go in that direction. What I was trying to do was to find my own illumination. And my illumination was not predicated upon making sure that white people felt better about themselves by the time I was done with the book. I wanted to say, here's the country that I live in. Here's the environment in which I live. Here are the pressures that are being placed upon me, and here's how I see things. And even if you're if – you're, and, and those are just the, the racial sections – but also when you're talking about the non-racial sections, when you're talking about the wealth inequality and the jokes on you and you're talking about policing and we're talking about celebrity and the hero game and all of these other concepts where, where the country is telling us that the power is making its move. I didn't want to tell people that everything's going to be all right because I don't know if everything's going to be all right. I don't think everything is going to be all right when you're looking at at, you know, if you really look at the numbers and you look at the feeling of what's happening in this country, I don't, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you mm. that LeBron James is going to come save you and build a school for you and Beyonce is going to put your kids through college because that, this is the blueprint right now that I see and I just don't agree with it. Um, there, there is one more question I wanted to ask you. 
even though it's not in the book. And, you know, you and I have had this discussion before where we talk about, you know, a book, you know, especially when you write about a moving target like this issue and how there's always more to write and how difficult it is to step away because there's always grist for this particular mill. And you put out, I thought, a very important um, Twitter, uh, Twitter, I guess, what would you call it, uh, string thread. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Where's my coffee? Um, a Twitter thread uh, about what everyone's really been talking about this week, and that's uh, the interview between Gail King and Lisa Leslie about the legacy of Kobe Bryant and the incredible backlash against Gail King, some of it incredibly abusive because she asked Lisa Leslie about Kobe uh, and the 2003-2004 sexual assault charges and um, an almost trial and civil settlement, and people's anger about the way that uh, Gail King even posed the questions and tried to lead Lisa Leslie down that path. And I, I wanted to get your, your thoughts about that entire uh, imbroglio. Well, I think my initial thoughts, one, I thought it was completely wild and inappropriate or wildly inappropriate that Snoop Dogg essentially threatened your life. I mean, that was mm. insane. And that was, that was nuts. just dead wrong. I think immediately when I was watching this or listening to it, um, I was thinking that I don't understand how people now see the need to sort of rehabilitate um, Bill Cosby and some of these other people. I'm like, well, wait a minute. This, and, and it reminds me very much of, of the Houston Astros getting caught cheating. So here's Pete Rose saying, well, cut me loose too. I should be free. Mm -hmm. No, man, you're still guilty. <laughs> I wrote about that this week. <laughs> what, what, what makes you think you get to be free? Now, what, are we just going to open the jail and let everybody out? <laughs> you, you, you know what? Your game is still your game. But in terms of, in terms of Kobe and, and Gail King, part of this also is this need of, to protect celebrity and especially especially of black people to protect black celebrity because it's all we have and and also i understand the raw emotions and the raw nerves of the appropriateness or inappropriateness of it i understand this the the different layers that are taking place here and essentially the power layers that are taking place who's controlling the narrative who's getting to do the talking and underneath all of this there's this battle between who's being punished is this uh, a white woman-led narrative um, buttressed by a few black, you know, rich black celebrities also trying to pile on Kobe. I can understand how people feel that. But I also know Gail King had a job to do, and I think she did it. I didn't love the fact that I thought she kept trying to lead uh, uh, Lisa Leslie in that regard. There's a difference between critiquing her professional performance and essentially calling her names and threatening her life. I, when I've been in interviews like that, in, in the position that Lisa Leslie has been in, usually I say something along the lines of, are you asking me this question or do you want to answer it? It seems like Gail King wanted to answer the question for Lisa Leslie, but that's just part of the, of the business. The larger question for me has been this, this battle between the, the, authentic, the, you know, the authentic narrative of Kobe. On the one hand, you look at this story and you say, okay, if you're going to talk about him and you're going to talk about his rape case, which I think is important to talk about, obviously, isn't it also important to talk about the whatever rehabilitation that took place after? Because let's face it, Toby was 
being rehabilitated in so many ways. And when he was alive, people were talking about him being this advocate for women's sports and people were talking about him and his, and his daughter and UConn. And they were talking about him being this great sort of motivational whisperer to today's players, male and female. And then that part of it sort of disappeared. I thought there was a dot disconnect. There were dots that should have been connected in terms of reconciling those two as a, as a, as a complete arc. I didn't see that arc. Then on the other hand, I also thought about something else, which was maybe there were a lot of people that never connected those dots, that were never into Kobe Bryant, but were intimidated by the enormous machine that was rehabilitating Kobe. The, the WNBA, the NBA, the Academy Awards, ESPN, because he was business partners with the company as well, that that made it impossible to criticize Toby and maybe only in death people felt like, okay, now I can actually say what I, what I've felt about this. So I think it's important to look at all of the different layers that are here and that those layers have to be allowed to coexist. And, and, and when you're talking about that lens and who gets to do the talking, are we willing to share the floor? Are we willing to share the floor with black women? Are we willing to share the floor with black men? Um, is this going to be a predominantly white woman media story, which is one of the things that I have been faced with. People have said this to me about who's doing the talking. All of these different angles, it's like Rashomon, all of these different angles have to exist. Otherwise, what we're going to fall into is we're going to end up replacing the power we say we detest with our own and make the exact same mistakes. If it's not Gail King, it's Brian Williams saying exactly the same things to Lisa Leslie. The vitriol's not nearly as intense, is it? It is. It's just different. Brian mm. Williams gets killed, but Brian Williams doesn't get killed along being a racial traitor. When you're listening mm-hmm. to what Snoop Dogg and what a lot of people are saying, you know what they're saying is this pylon on black men. And that's also the historical part of this, too, about the, the historical legacy of of black men being accused of rape and having their reputations destroyed or having their lives taken, you know, by white women, ironically, Carolyn Bryant, when it comes to Emmett Till back in in the 1950s. And so I get it. And people look at, at the Oprah's of the world and the Gail Kings, and they're thinking that they have a responsibility to protect us. And then I look at that and I go, well, obviously a lot of black men who are saying this haven't paid a whole lot of attention to all the anguish and the pain and the violence that black men have placed on black women. So it's more of us putting our business in the street, which black people always find to be sort of uncomfortable. But if Brian Williams had done that too, he gets crushed. He just gets crushed in a different way. Mm. Howard Bryant, I know you're on your way to see uh, the great film Parasite. Uh, so I want to leave you free so you can get your popcorn and your soda and settle in. Uh, 10.45, popcorn for breakfast. (laughs) I just really want to appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for writing this book. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Be well. That was Howard Bryant, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now I've got some choice words about Super Bowl 54. It was a television program where you could choose your own country based upon your worldview. There was, look how awesome the United States is because in three years we made America great. Or you could order up, look at how Donald Trump has turned our country into a racist, festering shithole. Two political ads bookended the Super Bowl, and they portrayed two visions courtesy of two New York City billionaires, Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg. The ads represented two stark perspectives that have nestled inside this country. One that is thrilled with the rising stock market, as well as the naked bigotry of this administration, and another that believes Trump has dragged this country towards racist autocracy. These ads gave actual life, a dose of the real world, to the mission statement and rosy Norman Rockwell-esque politics projected by the 2020 Super Bowl. The NFL's stated mission is to keep politics out of sports. Its owners even colluded against a Super Bowl quarterback and banished him from their league because he dared to take a knee against racialized police violence. But as was more than evident on Sunday, it's not politics that the league wants to expunge, but a certain kind of politics. Resistance politics, anti-racist politics, anti-militaristic politics, the politics of human liberation. Instead, an entire other set of ideas was spray-painted all across Super Bowl Sunday. And somewhere in the middle of that political messaging, there happened to be a football game. The reality of the Fox production of Super Bowl Sunday could be heard in a comment that Boston Globe writer Ben Volin reported from a Fox executive. If it doesn't celebrate football or celebrate America, it's not going to be on the show. The NFL's idea of celebrating football was seen in a commercial where a young black child with dyed blonde hair is seen running through a field of would-be tacklers without helmets or pads as NFL legends cheer him on. There was a shot of 83-year-old Jim Brown sitting on a park bench telling him to take it to the house. The child in the middle of his epic jaunt stopped in sad silence at a statue of the late NFL player turned Army Ranger Pat Tillman. This much-praised ad was football propaganda of the worst sort. Look at every box it checked. It portrayed the game as safe for people with individuality, the blonde dyed hair, even though it's a league that tries to crush individual expression. It celebrated black athleticism, even though it's a league without black ownership and a shameful paucity of black coaches and executives. It projected a sport that is both safe for children and absent of physical tragedy, even though it's a game that breaks players' bodies and causes life-altering concussive head injuries. It celebrated Jim Brown, even though Brown has a long history of violence against women. And perhaps most cynically, it used the memory of Pat Tillman as a near-mythological symbol of the synthesis of the NFL, the military, and sacrifice, positively genuflecting in front of his statue, even though Tillman's history is profoundly more complicated than that. Even though Tillman turned into a critic of both the army and the invasion of Iraq while he was still in service, 
and then died under a very suspicious and sloppily covered up instance of friendly fire. Even though the NFL, with all its power and political connections, never lifted a finger to help Tillman's family when they were pressuring the government to find out the truth. As for celebrating America, this was seen by invoking militarism at every turn, even comparing NFL players to the troops. The only comparison between the NFL players and the military in the real world is that both suffer from traumatic brain injuries that are covered up or scoffed at by their respective commanders-in-chief. The commercials also echoed this theme of One America, most grotesquely in an ad for Budweiser that celebrated the hugging of fully armored police by a young black man at a standoff between riot cops and protesters who were calling on police to stop killing them. The one respite from all this was the epic halftime show featuring Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo, and Shakira, which in an act of protest had Latinx children in cages as part of their set. In a video taken before her performance, J-Lo said, Other people can try to build walls, keep us out, or put us in cages. It was a harrowing image to have projected amid the glitz and glamour. Yet even this, not to mention her and Shakira's scorching performance, rings somewhat hollow since we know that the halftime show was planned and executed by Jay-Z as part of his NFL-branded social justice initiative, which seems entirely geared towards enriching Jay-Z and erasing Colin Kaepernick. But the two women rocked it, and in addition, they seem to have upset all the right people. Evangelicals like Franklin Graham more concerned with the children at home seeing some skin than the children who live behind bars in our homegrown internment camps. I swear a game was played somewhere amid this politicized din. The actual sport appeared almost quaint. You had to find it among the blaring John Philip Sousa bombastic chords. It was a fun game where the Kansas City Chiefs came from behind and scored 21 points in the fourth quarter to win 31 to 20. But the actual contest that will be remembered was the battle between the forces of Fox bleeding about the greatness of America and those who see us turning toward a much darker place. There is no amount of football and no flag big enough to hide the fact that these are dangerous times and any kind of national unity, even around football, only exists in the fever dreams of Fox Sports executives and Madison Avenue hacks. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Uh, Now let's go to the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to a boxer named Gary Russell Jr. And if you get the chance, you should read a piece about him by Gene Wang, who's one of my favorite writers in the Washington Post. Gary Russell uh, comes from an area near where I live in Capitol Heights, which is a very rough section of D.C. that sits right on the D.C. Uh, Maryland border. Uh, and Gary Russell, he's using his fight career as a way to try to help other folks in Capitol Heights. 
He said, a lot of my good friends, people I went to school with, people that I grew up with, they're locked up, they're dead, or they're either out here on the corner selling drugs, just not in the best position. I feel like I'm in the position where I want to give people a second chance at life. And you should read about how Gary Russell is trying to give people a second chance at life. And what I love about this story is that Gary Russell is not some big money boxer. He's not someone who's made a tremendous amount of money whatsoever. He's not some multimillionaire. He's not someone with a guaranteed contract. But what he's trying to do with the money that he makes is actually forge connections with the community of his childhood and of his youth as a way to help those who are being left behind. Now, people who listen to this show know that philanthropy is no substitute for activism. We know this. Uh, But when you have somebody actually speaking about the folks of Capitol Heights as if they're human beings with actual potential, that in and of itself is a political act. So good job, just stand up to Gary Russell. The Just Sit Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down, Sit Your Ass Down, goes to Pete Rose. If you play word association with Pete Rose's name, you'll hear all-time leading hits leader. You'll certainly hear that he's banned from baseball for life. And, of course, that he's banned from the Hall of Fame. Well, Pete Rose is 78 years old now, and he sees one last angle to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Even though he bet on his own team and against his own team as a manager of the Cincinnati Reds, which breaks the cardinal rule in baseball. Pete Rose is seeing that the Houston Astros are not being banned for life because they so clearly cheated their way to the 2017 World Series title and then a return to the World Series in 2019. Rose is saying, hey, where's my bite at the apple if we're not going to be prosecuting cheaters? I just think it's past time for Pete Rose to deal with the fact that he done messed up. And especially with Major League Baseball now embracing gambling in all 50 states to try to get their piece of that huge profit pie They definitely want the message sent to players that there is going to be a iron curtain between the world of gambling and the world of baseball. And Pete Rose is on the other side of that curtain. So Pete Rose, with respect, dear sir, sit down. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much to Howard Bryant. Thank you to everybody who puts this show together. For everybody out there listening, please, please, please support us on Patreon. Go to Patreon. We just got some new folks who are signed on. We need more folks. Helps us produce the show. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That would be fantastic. Also, please go to the iTunes or Stitcher page. Leave a rating. uh, Leave a little review. All that stuff helps the show in a big way amongst algorithms that I couldn't hope to understand. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.